The Tree of Appomattox, A Story of the Civil War's Close, by Joseph A. Altscheller, the eighth and final volume of the Civil War series. Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com. Read by John Bruzes. You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast. Chapter 7 Sheridan's Attack. More days passed, and the army of Sheridan lay waiting at the head of the valley, apparently without any aim in view. But Dick knew that if little Phil delayed, it was with good cause. As Colonel Winchester was high in the general's confidence, Dick saw the commander every day. He soon learned that he was of an intensely energetic and active nature, and that he must put a powerful rein upon himself to hold back when he had such a fine army to lead. Many of the younger officers expressed impatience, and Dick saw by the newspapers that the North, too, was chafing at the delay. Newspapers from the great cities, New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, reached their camp, and they always read them eagerly. Criticisms were leveled at Sheridan, and from the appearance of things, they had warned, but Dick had faith in their leader. Yet another period of depression had come in the North. The loss of life in Grant's campaign through the wilderness had been tremendous, and now he seemed to be held indefinitely by Lee and the trenches before Petersburg. The Confederacy, after so many great battles and such a prodigious role of killed and wounded, was still a nut uncracked, and Sheridan, who was expected to go up the valley and turn the southern flank, was resting quietly in his camp. Such was the face of matters, but Dick knew that, beneath, great plans were in the making, and that the armies would soon stir. The more he saw of Sheridan, the more he was impressed by him. He might prove to be the Stonewall Jackson of the North, young, eager, brave, he never fell into the fault of some other Union commanders of overestimating the enemy. He always had a cheery word for his young officers, and when he was not poring over the maps with his lieutenant of engineers, Megs, he was inspecting his troops and seeing that their equipment and discipline were carried to the highest pitch. He was the very essence of activity, and the army, although not yet moving, felt at all times the tonic of his presence. Cavalry detachments were sent out on a wider circle. Slade and his men had no opportunity to come so close again, but Shepard informed Dick that he was in the mountains hemming in the valley on the west, and that the statement of his having formed a junction with a band under Skelly from the Alleghenies was true. He had seen the big man and the little man together, and they had several hundred followers. Shepard, in these days, showed an almost superhuman activity. He would leave the camp, disguised as a civilian, and after covering a great distance and risking his life a dozen times, he would return with precious information. A few hours of rest, and he was gone again on a like errand. He seemed to be burning with an inward fire, not a fire that consumed him, but a fire of triumph. Dick, who had formed a great friendship with him, and who saw him often, had never known him to speak more sanguine words. Always cautious and reserved in his opinions, he talked now of the certainty of victory. He told them that the South was not only failing in men, 
having none to fill up its shattered ranks, but that food also was failing. The time would come, with the steel belt of the Northern Navy about it, and the Northern armies pressing in on every side, when the South would face starvation. But a day arrived when there were signs of impending movements in the great Northern Army. Long columns of wagons were made ready, and orders were issued for the vanguard of the cavalry to start at an appointed time. Then, to the intense disappointment of the valiant young troops, the orders were countermanded, and the whole army settled back into its quarters. Dick, who persistently refused to be a grumbler, knew that a cause must exist for such an action. But before he could wonder about it long, Colonel Winchester told him, Warner and Pennington, to have their horses saddled and be ready to ride at a moment's notice. We are to be part of General Sheridan's escort, he said, and we're to go to a little place called Charleston. The three were delighted. They were eager to move, and above all, in the train of Sheridan. The mission must be of great importance, or the commander himself would not ride upon it. Hence they saddled up in five minutes, hoping the call would come in the next five. "'Did Colonel Winchester tell you why we were going to ride?' asked Warner of Dick. "'No. Then perhaps we're going to receive the surrender of Early and all his men.' Dick laughed. "'I've heard that old Jube Early is one of the hardest swearers in the Southern Army,' he said. "'And I've heard, too, that he's just as hard a fighter.' I don't think he'll be handing us his surrender on a silver platter at Charleston or anywhere else. I know it, said Warner. I was only joking, but I'm wondering why we go. In ten minutes an orderly came with a message for them, and they were in the saddle as quickly as if they intended to ride to a charge. Sheridan himself and his staff and escort were as swift as they, and the whole troop swept away with a thunder of hoofs and the blood leaping in their veins. It was now almost the middle of September, and the wind that blew down from the crest of the mountains had a cool breath. It fanned Dick's face, and the great pulse in his throat leaped. He felt that this ride must portend some important movement. Sheridan would not gallop away from his main camp, except on a vital issue. It was not a long distance to Charlestown, and when they arrived there, they dismounted and waited. Dick saw Colonel Winchester's face express great expectancy, and he must know why they waited, but the youth did not ask him any questions, although his own curiosity increased. An hour passed, and then a short, thick-set, bearded man, accompanied by a small staff, appeared. Dick drew a deep breath. It was General Grant, commander-in-chief of all the armies of the Union, and Sheridan hastened forward to meet him. Then the two, with several of the senior officers, went into a house, while the younger men remained outside and on guard. "'I knew that we were waiting for somebody of importance,' said Warner, "'but I didn't dream that it was the biggest man we've got in the field.' "'Didn't your algebra give you any hint of it?' asked Dick. "'No. An algebra reasons. It doesn't talk and waste its time in idle chatter.' The young officers with their horses walked back and forth a long time, while Grant and Sheridan talked. Dick, surprised that Grant had left the trenches before Petersburg and had come so far to meet his lieutenant, felt that the meeting must be momentous. But it was even more crowded with the beginnings of great events than he thought. Grant, as he wrote long afterward, 
had come prepared with a plan of campaign for Sheridan. But, as he wrote, seeing that he was so clear and so positive in his views, I said nothing about this and did not take it out of my pocket. It was a quality of Grant's greatness, like that of Lee, to listen to a lieutenant, and when he thought his plan was better than his own, to adopt the lieutenants and put his own away. In that memorable interview, from which such stirring campaigns dated, Grant was impressed more and more by the earnestness and clearness of the famous little Phil, and, when they parted, he gave him a free rein and an open road. Sheridan, when they rode away from the conference, was sober and thoughtful. He was to carry out his own plan, but the full weight of the responsibility would be his, and it was very great for a young man who was not much more than thirty. But Dick and his comrades felt exultation, and did not try to hide it. Now that Grant himself had come to see Sheridan, the army was bound to move. Pennington looked toward the south and waved his hand. "'You've been waiting for us a long time, old Jube,' he said. "'But we're coming, and you'll see and hear our resistless tread.' "'Ah, uh, but don't forget, Frank,' said Warner soberly, "'that we'll have a big bill of lives to pay.' We don't ride unhurt over the Johnnies. Don't I know it, said Pennington. Haven't I been learning it every day for three years? Action was prompt as the young officers had hoped. The very next day, after the meeting with his superior, Sheridan prepared to march, and the hopes of Dick and his friends rose very high. They did not know that daring southern spies had learned of the meeting of Grant and Sheridan, and early, judging that it portended a great movement against him, was already consolidating his forces and preparing to meet it, and Jubal Early was an able and valiant general. Dick did not sleep that night. All had received orders to hold themselves in readiness for an instant march, and his blood tingled with expectancy. At midnight, the Winchester Regiment rode off to the left to join the cavalry under Wilson, which was to lead the advance, moving along a pike road, and then crossing the little river Opaquan. Dick rode close behind Colonel Winchester, and Warner and Pennington were on either side of him. Not far away from them was Sergeant Whitley, ready for use as a scout. Shepard had disappeared already in the darkness. They joined Wilson's command and waited in silence. At three o'clock in the morning, the word to advance was given, and the whole division marched forward in the starlight. They had not gone far before Shepard rode back, telling them that the crossing of the Opaquan was guarded by Confederate troops. The cavalry increased their speed. After the long period of inaction, they were anxious to come to grips with their foe. Dick still rode knee to knee with Warner and Pennington as they went on at a rapid pace in the starlight, the fields and strips of forest gliding past. Men on horseback talk less at night than in the day. And moreover, these had little to say. Their part was action, and they were waiting to see what the little Opaquan would disclose to them. "'Do you think they'll have a big force at the river?' asked Pennington. "'No,' replied Dick. "'I fancy from what we've heard of Early's army that he won't have the men to spare.' "'But we can look for a brush there,' said Warner. The night began to darken as a premonition of the coming dawn, a veil of vapor was drawn before the stars, trees blended together, and the air became chill. 
Then the vapor was pierced in the east by a lance of light. The rift widened, and the pale light of the first dawn appeared over the hills. Dick, using his glasses, saw a flash which he knew was the Opaquan, and with that silvery gleam of water came other flashes of red and rapid crackling reports. The southern sharpshooters along the stream were already opening fire. A great shout went up from the cavalry. All the forces restrained so long in these young men burst forth. The dawn was now deepening rapidly, its pallor turning to silver, and the river, for a long length, lay clear to view before them. Trumpets to right and left and in the center sounded the charge, the mellow notes coming back in many echoes. The horsemen, firing their own carbines and swinging aloft their sabers, galloped forward in a mighty rush. The beat of hundreds of hoofs made a steady sound, insistent and threatening. The yellow light of the sun, replacing the silver of the first dawn, gilded them with gold, glittering on the upraised blades and tense faces. The bullets of the southern sharpshooters, in the bushes and trees along the Opaquan, crashed among them, and horses and men went down, but the mighty sweep of the mass was not delayed for an instant. Dick was flourishing the cavalry saber that he now carried, and was shouting with the rest. Nearer and nearer came the belt of clear water, and the fire of the southern skirmishers increased in volume and accuracy. No great southern force was there, but the men were full of courage and activity. Their rifle fire emptied many of the northern saddles. A bullet went through the sleeve of Dick's tunic and grazed the skin, but he only felt a slight burning touch and then soon forgot it. Then the whole column started together as they swept into the Opaquan, driving before them through sheer weight of mass the skirmishers and sharpshooters who were hidden among the trees and thickets. The water itself proved but little obstacle. It was churned to foam by hundreds of trampling hoofs, and Dick felt it falling upon him like rain, but the drops were cool and refreshing. Still at a gallop, they emerged from the river, wet and dripping, so much water had been dashed up by the beating hoofs, and charged straight on, driving the scattered southern riflemen before them. Dick's exultation swelled, and so did that of Warner and Pennington. The young Nebraskan was compelled to give voice to his. Hurrah! he shouted. We'll gallop the whole length of the valley. Nothing can stop us. But Warner, naturally cautious, despite his rejoicings, would not go so far. Not the whole length of the valley, Frank, he exclaimed. Only half of it. All or nothing, shouted Pennington, carried away by his enthusiasm. Hurrah! Hurrah! Before them now lay a small earthwork, from which field pieces began to send ugly gusts of fire. But so great was the sweep of the cavalry that they charged directly upon it. The defenders, too few to hold it, withdrew and retreated in haste, and in a few minutes the northern cavalry were in possession. "'Didn't I tell you,' exclaimed Pennington, "'that we were going to gallop the whole length of the valley? "'We've taken a fort with horsemen.' "'Yes,' said Warner, "'but we'll stop here a while. "'Listen to the trumpets sounding the halt, "'and yonder you can see the main line of the Johnnies.' "'It was obvious that it was unwise to go farther "'until the whole army came up, "'as they heard other trumpets calling now.' 
and they were not their own, but those of their enemies. Early had not been caught napping. The dark lines of his infantry were advancing to retake the little fort. The cavalry was reduced in an instant from the offensive to the defensive, and dismounting and sending their horses to the rear, where they were held by every tenth man, they waited with carbines ready, the masses of men in gray bearing down upon them. Dick wondered if the Invincibles were there before him. Second thought told him that it was unlikely, as the advancing troops were infantry, and he knew that the Invincibles were now mounted. "'Now, lads,' said Colonel Winchester, going down the ranks, "'ready with your rifles.' The southern infantry came on to the steady beating of a drum somewhere, but as they drew near the fort, a sheet of bullets poured upon them and drove them back, leaving the ground sprinkled with the fallen. Again and again they reformed and returned to the charge, always to meet the same fate. "'Brave fellows!' exclaimed Warner. "'But they can't retake this fort from us.' After the last repulse, Colonel Winchester drew out his men, mounted them, and charging the infantry in flank, sent them far down the road toward Winchester, where heavy columns came to their support. But the Winchester men had time to breathe, and also to exult, as they had suffered but little loss. While they remained at the captured fort, awaiting further orders, they watched the battle elsewhere, flaring in a long, irregular line across the valley. The rifle fire was heavy, and the big guns of Early were sweeping the roads with shell and grape shot. As well as Dick could see through his glasses, the only success yet achieved was that of the cavalry at the fort. Sheridan himself had not yet appeared, and the hopes of the three sank a little. They had seen so many triumphs nearly achieved and then lost that they could believe in nothing until it was done. But the morning was yet very young. While the east had long been full of light, the golden glow was just enveloping the west. The rifles crashed incessantly, and the heavy thunder of the cannon gave the steady sound a deeper note. The fire of the defending southern force made a red stream across the hills and fields. "'It's too early to have a battle,' said Warner, looking at the sun, which was not yet far above the horizon. "'Too early for us, or too early for the Johnnies?' said Pennington. I think, Dick, I see those rebel friends of yours. Turn your glasses to the right, and look at that regiment of horses by the edge of the grove. I see at the head of it two men with longish hair. Apparently they are elderly, and they must be Colonel Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire. Dick turned his glasses eagerly, and the officers of the Invincibles were at once recognizable to his more familiar eye. He could not mistake Colonel Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire, both of whom were watching the progress of the battle through glasses, and he knew that the four young men who sat their horses just behind them were Harry, St. Clair, Dalton, and Langdon. As no further attack was made on the fort, and Colonel Winchester's troop remained stationary for the time, Dick kept his glasses bearing continually upon the Invincibles. The glasses were powerful, and they told him much. He inferred from the manner in which the men were drawn up that they would charge soon. Near them, a battery of four Confederate guns was planted on a hill, and it was firing rapidly and effectively, sending shell and shrapnel into advancing lines of blue infantry. A singular feeling took hold of him, one of which he was not then conscious, 
He knew six of the officers who sat in the front of the Invincibles, and one of them was his own cousin, almost his brother. He did not know a soul in the blue columns advancing upon them, and his hopes and fears centered suddenly around that little group of six. The wood was filled with southern infantry, as it was now spouting flame, and the battery continued to thunder as fast as the men could reload and fire. The Invincibles, who carried short rifles, much like the carbines of the North, raised them and pulled the triggers. Many in the blue column fell, but the others went on without faltering. Dick knew from long experience what would follow, and he watched it alike with the eye and the mind that divines. Either his eye or his fancy saw the Invincibles lean forward a little, fasten their rifles, shake loose the reins with one hand, and drop the other hand to the hilt of the saber. It was certain that in the next minute they would charge. He saw a trumpeter raise a trumpet to his lips and blow, loud and shrill. Then the column of the Invincibles leaped forward, the necks of the horses outstretched, the men raising their sabers and flashing them above their heads. Dick drew deep breaths, and his pulses beat painfully. Had he realized what his wishes were then, he would have considered himself a traitor. In those swift moments, his heart was with the Invincibles and not with the blue columns that stood up against them. He saw the gray horsemen sweep forward into a cloud of fire and smoke in which he caught the occasional flash of a saber. The combat behind the veil lasted only a minute or two, though it seemed an hour to Dick and then he saw the blue infantry reeling back, their advance checked by the charge of the Invincibles. A cheer rose in Dick's throat, but he checked it, and then, remembering, he trembled in a brief chill, as if shaken by the knowledge that for a few moments at least he had not been true to the cause for which he fought. "'A gallant charge those Johnnies made,' said Warner, "'and it's been effective, too. Our men are falling back, while the Johnnies are returning to their place near the wood. Dick was straining his eyes through the glasses to see whether any of the five whom he knew had fallen. But as the Invincibles returned from their victorious charge in a close mass, it was impossible for him to tell. A number of saddles had been emptied, as riderless horses were galloping wildly over the plain. He sighed a little and replaced his glasses in their case. "'Here come more of our cavalry,' said Warner. They heard the heavy beat of many hoofs, and in an instant many horsemen swarmed about them. It was Sheridan himself who led them, his face flushed and eager, and his eyes blazing. He was a little man, but he was electric in his energy, and his very presence seemed to communicate more spirit and fire to the troops. The officers crowded about him, and while he swept the field with his glasses— he also gave a rapid command. The southern resistance, despite inferior numbers, was valiant and enduring. Their heavy guns were pouring a deadly fire upon the northern center. Beyond the taking of the fort by the cavalry, the army of the Shenandoah had made no progress, and the southern troops were rapidly concentrating at every critical point. Old Jube Early, mighty swearer, was proving himself a master of men. Dick could not watch Sheridan long, as the cavalry were quickly sent off to the left to clear away skirmishers and let the infantry and artillery get up on that front. 
There were many groups of trees, and from every one of these the southern riflemen sent swarms of bullets. It seemed to Dick that he was preserved miraculously. Many a bullet coming straight for his head must have turned aside at the last moment to seek a target elsewhere. To him, at least, these bullets were merciful that morning. But they cleared the ground, though some of their own saddles were emptied, and the infantry and the artillery came up behind them. The big guns were planted and began to reply to those of the south. Yet the Confederate lines still held fast. Clouds of smoke floated over the field, but whenever they lifted sufficiently, Dick saw the gray army maintaining all its positions. He looked for the Invincibles again, but could not find them. Doubtless, they were hid from his view by the hills. "'It's anybody's fight,' said Warner, surveying the field with his cool mathematical eye. "'We have the greater numbers, but our infantry are coming up slowly, and besides, the enemy has the advantage of interior lines.' "'And the morning wanes,' said Dick. "'I thought we'd make a grand rush and sweep over them. "'Oh, these Johnnies are tough. They have to be. "'There's not much marching over the other by either side in this war.' A heavy battle of cannon and rifles, with no advantage to either side, went on for a long time. Dick saw Sheridan galloping here and there, and urging on his troops, but the reserves were slow in coming, and he was not yet able to hurl his full strength upon the enemy. Noon came, the battle already having lasted four or five hours, and Sheridan had no triumph to show, save the little fort that the cavalry had seized early in the morning. "'Do you think we'll have to draw off?' asked Pennington. "'Maybe we'll have to, but we won't,' replied Dick. "'Sheridan refuses to recognize necessities when they're not in his favor. "'You'll now see the difference between a man and men.' "'Colonel Winchester's regiment was sent off further to the left "'to prevent any flanking movement, "'but they could still see most of the field. "'For the moment they were not engaged, "'and they watched the thrilling and terrific panorama as it passed before them. Colonel Winchester himself suddenly broke from his calm and pointed to the rear of the Union lines. Look, he exclaimed, all our reserves of infantry and artillery are coming up. The whole army will now advance. They saw very clearly the deepening of the lines in the center. Sheridan was there massing the new troops for the attack, and soon the trumpets sounded the charge along the whole front. The northern batteries redoubled their fire, and the south, knowing that a heavier shock of battle was coming, replied in kind. "'Here we go again!' cried Pennington, and the horsemen rode straight at their enemy. It seemed to Dick that the southern regiments came forward to meet them, and a battle, long, fierce, and wavering in its fortunes, ensued. The wing to which the Winchesters belonged pressed forward, driving their enemy before them, only to be caught when they went too far by a savage flanking fire of the artillery. Early had brought in his reserve guns, and so powerful was their attack that at this point the northern line was almost severed, and a southern wedge was driven into the gap. But Sheridan did not despair. He had a keen eye and a collected mind, infused with a fiery spirit. Where his line had been weakened, he sent new troops, with charge after charge, he drove the Confederates out of the gap and closed it up. A whole division was then hurled with its full weight against the southern line, and they broke it, 
although the gallant general who led the column fell shot through the heart. But Early formed new lines. It was only a temporary success for Sheridan. An important division of cavalry sent on a wide-flanking movement had not yet arrived, and he wondered why. Perhaps the thought came into his own dauntless heart that he might not succeed at all. But if so, he hid it and called up fresh resources of strength and courage. It was now far into the afternoon, but he resolved nevertheless to win victory before the day was over. Everywhere the call for a new charge was sounded. The Winchesters had a good trumpeter, a deep-chested young fellow, who loved to blow forth mellow notes, and now, as his brazen instrument sang the song that summoned men to death, the young men unconsciously tightened the grip of the knee on their horses, and leaned forward a little, as if they would see the enemy more closely. To the right the fire grew heavier and heavier, and most of the field was hidden by a thick veil of smoke. Dick saw other cavalry massing on either side of the Winchester Regiment, and he knew their charge was to be one of great weight and importance. "'I feel that we're going to win or lose here,' he said to Warner. "'Looks like it,' replied the Vermonter. "'But I think you can put your money on the cavalry today. "'It's Sheridan's great striking arm.' "'It'll have to strike with all its might, that's sure,' said Dick. "'He did not know that the force in front of him "'was commanded by a general from his own state, Breckinridge, "'once Vice President of the United States, "'and also high in the councils of the Confederacy. "'Breckinridge was inspiring his command with the utmost vigor and already his heavy guns were sweeping the front of the Union cavalry while the riflemen stood ready for the charge. The great mass of northern horsemen were eager and impatient. A thrill of anticipation seemed to run through them as if through one body, and when the final command was given, they swept forward in a mighty, irresistible line. In Dick's mind, then, anticipation became knowledge. He was as sure as he was of his own name that they were going to win. Again he was knee-to-knee -knee with Warner and Pennington, and with these good comrades on his right and left, he rode into the southern fire, among the shell and shrapnel and grapeshot and bullets that had swept so often around him. In spite of the most desperate courage, the southern troops gave way before the terrific onset. They had to give ground, or they would have been trampled under the feet of the horses. Cannon and many rifles were taken, and the whole Confederate division was driven in disorder down the road. Warner's stern calm was broken, and he shouted in delight, We win! We win! Then Dick and Pennington shouted with him, We win! We win! And as the smoke of their own battle lifted, they saw that the Union army elsewhere was triumphant also. Sheridan, along his whole line, was forcing the enemy back toward Winchester, raking him with his heavy guns and sending charge after charge of cavalry against him. Unable to withstand the weight hurled upon them, the southern troops gave ground at an increased rate. Yet Early and his veterans never showed greater courage than on that day. His brave officers were everywhere, checking the fugitives, and his best division turning a front of steel to the enemy, covered the retreat. Neither infantry nor cavalry could break it, although every man in the southern command 
knew that the battle was lost. Yet they were resolved that it should not become a rout, and though many were falling before the Union force, they never shrank for a moment from their terrible task. The Invincibles were in the division that covered the retreat, and they were exposed at all times to the full measure of the Union attack. Dalton had joined them that morning, but the bullets and shells seemed resolved to spare the four youths and the two colonels, or at least not to doom them to death. Nearly every one of them bore slight wounds, and often men had been killed only a few feet away, but the valiant band, led by its daring officers, fought with undimmed courage and resolution. "'I fear that we have been defeated, Hector,' said Colonel Talbot. "'Don't call it a defeat, Leonidas. It's merely a masterly retreat before superior numbers, after having inflicted great loss upon the enemy. As you see, we are protecting our withdrawal.' Every attack of the enemy upon our division has been beaten back, and we will continue to beat him back as long as he comes. True, true, Hector, and the Invincibles are bearing a great part in this glorious feat of arms. But the Yankee General Sheridan is not like the other Yankee generals who operated in the valley earlier in the war. We're bound to admit that. We do admit it, Leonidas, and alas, we now have no Stonewall Jackson to meet him. "'brave and capable as General Early is. "'The two colonels looked at the setting sun "'and hoped that it would go down with a rush. "'The division could not hold forever "'against the tremendous pressure upon it that never ceased, "'but darkness would put an end to the battle. "'The first gray of twilight was already showing on the eastern hills, "'and Early's men still held the broad turnpike leading into the south. "'Here, fighting with all the desperation of imminent need, they beat off every effort of the northern cavalry to gain their ground, and when night came, they still held it, withdrawing slowly and in good order, while Sheridan's men, exhausted by tremendous marches and heavy losses, were unable to pursue. Yet the north had gained a great and important victory. Darkness closed over a weary but exultant army. It had not destroyed the forces of Early, and it had been able to pursue only three miles. It had lost 5,000 men in killed and wounded, but the results, nevertheless, were great, and the soldiers knew it. The spell of southern invincibility in the famous valley, where Jackson had won so often, was broken, and the star of Sheridan had flashed out with brilliancy to last until the war's close. They knew, too, that they now held all of the valley north of Winchester, and they were soon to know that they would continue to hold it. They commanded also a great railway and a great canal, and the South was cut off from Maryland and Pennsylvania, neither of which it could ever invade again. Although a far smaller battle than a dozen that had been fought, it was one of the greatest and most complete victories the North had yet won. After a long and seemingly endless deadlock, a terrible blow had been struck at the flank of Lee, and the news of the triumph filled the North with joy. It was also given on this occasion to those who had fought in the battle itself to know what they had done. They were not blinded by the dust and shouting of the arena. Dick, with his two young comrades, sat beneath an oak and ate the warm food and drank the hot coffee the camp cook brought to them. They had escaped without hurt, and they were very happy over the achievement of the day. The night was crisp, filled with starshine, 
and the cooking fires had been built along a long line, stretching away like a series of triumphant bonfires. I felt this morning that we would win, said Dick. I've felt several times that we would win when we didn't, said Pennington. But this time I felt it right. They say that Stonewall Jackson always communicated electricity to his men, and I think our little Phil has the same quality. Since we first came to him here, I haven't doubted that we would win, and when I saw him and Grant talking, I knew that we'd be up and doing. It's the spirit that Grant showed us at Vicksburg, said Warner seriously. Little Phil, I intend to call him that when I'm not in his presence, because it's really a term of admiration, is another Grant, only younger and on horseback. It's fire that does it, said Dick. No, Frank, I don't mean this material fire burning before us, but the fire that makes him see obstacles little and advantages big, the fire that makes him rush over everything to get at the enemy and destroy him. Well spoken, Dick, said Warner. A bit rhetorical, perhaps, but that can be attributed to your youth and the region from which you come. It's a great pity, George, about my youth and the region from which I come. If so many youths in blue didn't come from that same region, the whole Mississippi Valley might now be in the hands of the Johnnies. Didn't I tell you, Dick, not to argue with him, said Pennington? What's the use? New England has the writers, and when this war is ended victoriously, they'll give the credit of all the fighting to New England. After a while, through the printed word, they'll make other people believe it too. Then you Nebraskans and Kentuckians should learn to read and write. Why blame me? said Warner with dignity. Colonel Winchester joined them at that moment, having returned from a brief council with Sheridan and his officers. Dick, without a word, passed him a plate of hot ham and a tin cup of sizzling coffee. The colonel, who looked worn to the bone but triumphant, ate and drank. Then he settled himself into an easy place before one of the fires and said, A messenger has gone to General Grant with the news of our victory and it will certainly be a most welcome message. The news will also be sent to the nearest telegraph station, and then it will travel on hundreds of wires to every part of the north, but while it's flashing through space, we'll be riding to a new battle. I expected it, sir, said Dick. I suppose we advance again at dawn, and maybe a little sooner. Now you boys must rest. You've had eighteen hours of marching and fighting. I've been very proud of my regiment today, and fortunately, we have escaped without large losses. And you too sleep, sir, do you not? said Warner respectfully. If we've been marching and fighting for eighteen hours, so have you. I shall do so a little later, but there's no reason why the rest of you should delay. How that coffee and ham refreshed me. I didn't know I was so nearly dead. Here's more, Colonel. Thank you, Dick. I believe I will. But, as I say, go to sleep. I want all my regiment to sleep. We don't know what's before us tomorrow, but whatever it is, it won't be easy. Now you boys have had enough to eat and drink. Into the blankets with you. He did not wait to see his order obeyed, but strode away on another hasty errand. But it was obeyed, and that too, without delay. The young warriors rolled themselves in their blankets and hunted a soft place for their heads. But their nerves were not yet quiet and sleep did not come for a little while. The long lines of fire still glowed, and the sounds of an army came to them. Dick looked up into the starshine. He was still rejoicing in the victory, not because the other side had lost, 
but because, in his opinion, it brought peace much nearer. He realized as he lay there, gazing into the skies, that the South could never win as long as the North held fast, and the North was holding fast. The stars as they winked at him seemed to say so. He propped himself up upon his elbow and said, George, does your little algebra tell you anything about the meaning of this victory? Warner tapped his breast. That noble book is here in the inside pocket of my tunic, he replied. It's not necessary for me to take it out, but tucked away on the 118th page is a neat little problem which just fits this case. Let X equal the Army of Northern Virginia, let Y equal the Army of Early here in the valley, and let X plus Y equal a possibly successful defense by the South. But when Y is swept away, it's quite certain that X, standing alone, cannot do so. My algebra tells you on the 118th page, tucked away neatly in a paragraph, that this is the beginning of the end. Sounds more like a formula than a problem, George. But still, I'm putting my faith in your little algebra book. George's algebra is all right, said Pennington, but it doesn't always go before. It often comes after. It doesn't show us how to do a thing, but proves how we've done it. As for me, I'm pinning my faith to little Phil. He won a great victory today, when all our other leaders for years have been beaten in the Valley of Virginia, and sometimes beaten disgracefully, too. Your argument is unanswerable, Frank, said Dick. I didn't expect such logic from you. Oh, I think I'm real bright at times, despite popular belief, said Warner. I don't advertise my talents, said Pennington. But you ought to. They need it. Dick laughed. Frank, he said, I give you your own advice to me. Don't argue with him. With him, the best proof that he's always right is because he thinks he is. I think clearly and directly, which can be said of very few of my friends, rejoined Warner. Then all three of them laughed and lay down again, resting their heads on the soft lumps of turf. They were under the branches of a fine oak, on which the leaves were yet thick. Birds hidden among the leaves began to sing, and the three, astonished, raised themselves up again. It was a chorus, beautiful and startling, and many other soldiers listened to the sound, so unlike that which they had been hearing all day. "'Strange, isn't it?' said Pennington. "'But fine to hear,' said Warner. "'Likely they were in the tree this morning when the battle began,' said Dick, "'and when the cannon and the rifles frightened them so much, "'they stayed close within the leaves. "'Now they're singing with joy, because it's all over.' "'A good guess, I think, Dick,' said Warner. "'But isn't it beautiful at such a time and such a place? "'How these little fellows must be swelling their throats. "'I don't believe they ever sang so well before.' I didn't think today that I'd be sung to sleep tonight, said Dick, but it's going to happen. When his eyes closed and he floated away to slumberland, it was to the thrilling song of a bird on a branch above his head.